I want to share with you a message today that is kind of the product of a number of weeks of me seeking the Lord personally, and I think God dealing with me on a personal level, but I believe this can be helpful to all of us. And the title of the message I want to bring to you today is Radical Rules of the Kingdom. Radical Rules of the Kingdom. The Bible has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God will ultimately smash, destroy, and replace every other kingdom, government, dominion, power ever known. And we find that triumphant uh, exclamation at the end of the book of Revelation, the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. Daniel saw a rock coming and smashing every other rock, every other thing that has ever been lifted up in the world. And he understood through God that that rock is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is coming, it has come, but we're about to see it in all of its fullness and glory. And from the very moment Jesus began to preach, we can see what was really important to him in some of the first words out of his mouth. After he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and came in the power of the Spirit after the 40 days he was fasting and praying in the wilderness, What was he talking about? Repent, for the kingdom is at hand. He went all around preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And God has been impressing on me in a fresh and a powerful way. This thing that we do is all about the kingdom of God. It's not about our kingdom. It's not about our... uh, whatever we want to say we've done or built. This is all about God's kingdom. And as the title of my message indicates, any kingdom, and sometimes I like to replace that word with some other words to help us to kind of relate it more on a practical level. You could replace that with government. That doesn't sound so nice, does it? The government of God. We like kingdom because then we see angels and thrones and golden streets and all that's true but it is also God's government and when you have a government what do you have what must every government have it's got to have some kind of law otherwise what is it if it's if it's just free for all then it's anarchy it's not a government And we're going to see, I think, clearly today, God's kingdom has rules. It has laws. These are not like the laws and rules of man. They're very, very different. And what kind of started me on this journey recently, and I want you to turn with me to Matthew 7, was realizing that I think in the last six weeks, Um, I've heard this portion of scripture quoted from different people and different sources probably a half a dozen times. And you may have even heard me quote it recently that I 
of all the scriptures in the Bible, this is the one that scares me the most. And I'm not here to scare you today. (laughs) But this one is scary. And it's found in Matthew 7, verses 21 to 23. And Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. What's this all about? The kingdom. Entering the kingdom. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Here's the scary part. Many. What's many mean? Doesn't mean a few, does it? It means a lot more than a few. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and perform many miracles? Now, when I read the scriptures, I'm not saying you need to do this, but one thing that helps me sometimes to arrive a little bit more at the meaning of scriptures is to turn them around in different ways. What does the scripture not say? Sometimes that helps me to understand what it does say. And I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say here in response to what these many folks were saying. First of all, they were calling him Lord, Lord. He doesn't deny that. He doesn't say, you never called me Lord before. What were they saying? We prophesied in your name. He didn't say, no you didn't seems to suggest that they were being truthful. These people prophesied. Now, somebody help me here. What do you need to be able to prophesy? Huh? To hear from God. Well, or you think you heard. And generally speaking, if you understand 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, it's one of the gifts of the Spirit. It was one of the first signs on the day of Pentecost. They began to prophesy. Okay, he doesn't deny that part. And in your name, they weren't doing this in their own name. In your name, in the name of Jesus, what were they doing? My God, help me somebody. They were casting out demons. Now, I don't mean to be critical, but I don't think there are too many, you know, of the denominational uh, churches out here that are doing that. I grew up in the Episcopal Church. I never even heard about a demon in all the years I went there, much less anybody casting one out. So, this is a peculiar group of people. They know what it is to prophesy. They apparently know what it is to drive out demons. And then, in your name... We've performed many miracles. That's why this one scares me. That's why this portion of Scripture scares me. Um, I've done all these things. Many of you probably have. Prophesied. Laid hands on the sick. Seen them recover. Cast out demons. Seen God use you in marvelous ways. He doesn't 
argue with them about those claims. He simply comes back in verse 23 and says, I never knew you. Whoa. There's some kind of a major disconnect here. I never knew you. They've been calling him Lord, calling on his name, and now they're going to find out, I never knew you. Now, can you have a relationship with someone, maybe you know them or you know about them, and they don't know anything about you? Is that possible? No. Relationships are two-way. And the fact that he says, I never knew you, gives me a clue here. They never had a real relationship with Jesus Christ. And we don't have time to go into that a lot today, but the emphasis in the New Testament is not on religion, it's on relationship. It's not just doing a bunch of things, going somewhere, as we were talking earlier, but it's about a two-way relationship with someone that obviously is meant to be very personal. Where I know you, and he comes back and says, I know you too. But here, at the end of the road, and I'm sure they were shocked to hear this, I don't know you. Then, here's the scary part. Away from me, depart from me, you evildoers. Or, depending on your translation, workers of iniquity. But really, the best translation of all, the closest to the original language, uh, you find in the New King James Version, which is lawless ones. That's really what it means. They were lawless. Now that's going to help me dive into my message today. What did we just say is essential for any government? A law. What was their real problem? It wasn't whether or not they were calling him Lord, casting out demons, prophesying, or whatever. And the earlier scripture goes right along with this. They were not doing the will of the Father. But here it's a little clearer, they were lawless. Now this isn't talking about keeping the Ten Commandments. This is talking about the laws of the kingdom. And this is where God has really been helping me to understand this more and more in recent weeks. And let me tell you something, I have been pouring over these verses, not to try to get a sermon, but very seriously, these things scare me. It's put the fear of God in me, especially in light of things that I've seen in recent weeks and months. God, I don't want to end up at the end of my Christian life and have a surprise like this and say, I don't even know who you are, man. Get out of here. God, have mercy on me. And as I've been praying, Lord, what, what is this about? He gave me two answers. 
first answer is, don't stop reading there. Read a few more verses down because that's the end of this sermon. And it's critical because he goes right from there in the verses 24 to 27. And I have them here in the New King James. Let's see if it is any easier to follow here. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. By the way, that's the whole emphasis in this little book that we've written. It's all about having foundation. And we actually begin with this portion of Scripture to sort of set the stage for this whole little book. What is the foundation that we're building for our Christian life? We can put a nice house up real quickly, but if there isn't something underneath it, there might be problems. Let me start again from verse 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, say these sayings. These sayings. These sayings. sayings. Very important. And this is where I've gotten a little bit of a better insight into what he's trying to say here. Now, I'm not discounting all the rest that's written in the New Testament. But this is part of a sermon. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's all the words of Christ. It's just Jesus preaching what apparently was one sermon that he gave up on the mountainside. Matthew records it for it. We find it in different forms in uh the Gospel of Luke, and to a lesser degree in the Gospel of Mark, but the best uh, full rendering of it is here in Matthew. These sayings of mine, and it, it arrested me, it stopped me in my tracks, and I go, oh, wow. I better go back and study Matthew 5, 6, and 7 a whole lot more carefully. Now, I'm not saying this to brag or boast, but when Pastor Tom and I started off together, we loved the Word of God. And we were passionate about studying the Word, memorizing the Word. And one of the first things the Holy Spirit led me to do was to memorize the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I would go for long walks in the woods where we used to live and just recite the whole sermon over and over and over. So, I mean, this is something that I memorized years ago. Nevertheless, God is speaking to me things that I never saw there before. And this is one of them. The emphasis in verses 24 to 27 is specifically on these sayings, i.e., Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which we're going to talk about more in a minute. But let me do it again. Therefore, Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who has built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. It had a foundation. Luke actually uses that word foundation when he gives the same message. But everyone who hears 
these sayings of mine, these sayings of mine, they heard them, same sayings, but does not do them, will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. There are a number of similarities between the wise man and the foolish man. They both heard his sayings. They both heard everything. Second thing they have in common, and this is not to scare you, but i got to be real with you today. In both of their cases, the rains, the floods, and the winds came. Stuff comes. Do I have any friends in here today? Rains come. Floods come. Shakings come. I've been doing this for uh, almost 44 years. And one thing I can tell you, I can confirm what the apostles say in the book of Acts. Through much tribulation, we're going to enter the kingdom of God. This is no cakewalk. I don't want to scare you, Rudy. God bless you for becoming a disciple. It's a marvelous journey. It ain't easy. There are bumps and curveballs and strange things that you're never going to understand, but God will be with you. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. And if you stick with Him at the end of the journey, you will not regret a moment of it. Never. Never. Wouldn't trade it in for anything else. So, they both heard, they both experienced the same trials that life throws at us, but here are the differences. Oh, third similarity, they both built a nice house. Nice house. But note the differences. One had a foundation, one didn't. That's the only difference. No foundation. The interpretation of it is the other difference. One did or practiced what he heard. The other simply heard. And let me say something here. There's a grave danger in settings like this, in religion in general, in churches where we hear, we hear, we hear, and we think hearing is enough. According to this, hearing isn't enough. We need to digest it and put it into practice. That's hard. That's hard. So, as I've looked through Matthew 7, just verses 21 to 27, it's caused me to ask, Lord, what does this mean to me? How can I be assured that this is never going to happen to me, that at the end of my race, I'm going to hear you say, I don't know who you are. Get out of here. Well, I've already got a couple of clues here. Number one, I need to make sure I'm doing what I'm hearing from him. 
Number two, I need to be doing the will of my Father. That was the key in verse 21. But more specifically, and here's where where I want to take us in the rest of this study. It's more of a study today. These sayings of mine. That narrows it down. How many of you like simple? I like simple. (laughs) I, I, I mean... If you were to say, brother, are you doing everything in the New Testament today? I don't even know if I know what that means yet. But I think I can wrap my brain around three chapters. I can at least start to work on three chapters. And that's a pretty big assignment. And that seems to be the emphasis. And by the way, that's no small thing. As you're going to see, just Matthew 5, 6, and 7, my goodness, That's a lifetime assignment right there. If you really understand the things Jesus preached. And as I said, this is regularly referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It is generally believed to have been one single sermon that Jesus gave. And man, oh man, I would like to have heard that one. I wish I could have been there and heard the delivery of this sermon. Because there's, there's nothing like this. When, when you start to hear the words of Jesus in these three chapters, that's why I use the word radical in my title. These are radical laws, radical rules. But nevertheless, it might help you to look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, sort of like Jesus the King... Remember, he's come declaring the kingdom of God. The king is outlining for us, here are the bylaws of the Constitution. This is the framework of my government. You're going to find this is not like any other government that's ever existed or ever will exist. Radical, radical things are taught here. And before we do that, um, and again, we don't have time to go into all the details on this today, so I'm going to be firing away pretty quickly. But one of the questions that Jesus often asks and tries to answer in a number of his parables is, what's the kingdom like? Many of the parables begin with, The kingdom of heaven is like. And then it's a man sowing seed, a man casting net into the water and drawing fish in. Um, This is what the kingdom is like. So this was always in his mind in a lot of his teaching, preaching, sermons, and especially in the parables. What is the kingdom of God like? Well, I gave a real quick little summary here. And again, this is a whole teaching in itself. But... Here are a few things that I've gleaned from the scriptures concerning the kingdom. Number one, it's not of this world. Jesus said that in Matthew 18. My kingdom is not of this world. And so, it does not operate on worldly principles. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, I would call down, you know, a legion of angels to fight for me. But we're not going to do it the world's way, because my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom is not carnal. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 
flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's not worldly. It's not carnal. And that's, I mean, let's be real. That's where we are. That's where we live. We live in the world and we're flesh and blood. And yet, this is beyond that. It transcends the world. It transcends the flesh. Jesus said, it's invisible. You can't see it. It doesn't come with any physical observation. Now, let me, let me qualify that. There are going to be evidences, tangible evidences of the kingdom, but it's not a kingdom you can see. Like, you can go down to Washington, D.C. and see the White House and see the Congress building and see the Supreme Court building and you see... Uh, at least some physical representation of the three branches of the U.S. government. Nothing like that when it comes to the kingdom of God. It's invisible because it's spiritual. It's not carnal. It's not worldly. It's not visible. It's an invisible spiritual kingdom. Here's a good one. Paul says the kingdom of God is not words. Wow. That kind of puts me in my place right now, because all I'm doing is speaking words. But listen to what he says. Kingdom of God is not words, it's power. So again, if, if all we have is a bunch of words that we heard and spoken today, we've missed it. Kingdom of God is not just a lecture, a sermon, a bunch of words or a Bible study. Kingdom of God is power. Real power. And finally, this is one of my favorite ones, Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking. Anybody here like to eat? <laughs> Come on, don't be so spiritual. I know when you guys go out on your buffet Sunday. Huh? I like it. I like to eat. There are times when I like to fast, but I like to eat too. I know. But the kingdom of God has nothing to do with that. It's not eating and drinking. It's righteousness, peace, and joy. And here's the key to everything. In the Holy Ghost. In the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if I cast out demons, and he did too, if I cast out demons then I've done it by the Spirit of God, and then you're going to know the kingdom has come. Notice the connection between the Holy Spirit and the kingdom. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then you know the kingdom has come. Here's the challenge. God is calling us not only to inherit the kingdom, that's the ultimate goal, but he wants the kingdom in us. And he wants us to take the kingdom into all the world. So whether I'm teaching in a classroom or doing my accounts in my office or whatever I'm doing, God wants me to be the salt, to be the light, to be the kingdom in that particular setting. That's, that's a pretty tall order. And I'll tell you right off the bat, it's humanly impossible. 
We can't do it. We need the Spirit of God in us to bring that about. So, if you keep this now in the back of your mind, and we're going to go to the beginning of the sermon, I think you're going to realize why Jesus ended on this note, because this is where he begins the sermon. He begins talking about the kingdom, and he ends the sermon talking about the kingdom. And that's why I've titled this Radical Rules of the Kingdom. And remember, the difference between the wise man and the fool is what they did with these sayings of mine. I think that's very important to understanding this. He's saying, pay close attention to these sayings. Just these three chapters of the New Testament should be enough for you and me to understand what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. All right? And very quickly, I mentioned this. Just who is going to enter the kingdom? Just who is going to inherit the kingdom? Well, again, not to get into a whole lot of scripture, but my favorite verse on that one, and probably yours too, is John 3. When Nicodemus came to Jesus, Nicodemus had all kinds of questions. Jesus never really answered his questions. <laughs> I like that. A lot of times people would come to Christ with questions. He didn't answer their questions. He told them what they needed to hear. And many times you and I will be going to God with questions, and you're wondering, why isn't he answering my question? Stop for a minute. He might be telling you what you need to hear. So here he comes back to Nicodemus and said, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom. Hold it. I thought we just heard that the kingdom's invisible. You find that in Luke 17 if you want to look it up later. But the kingdom's invisible. And here he is telling Nicodemus, there are some people that are going to see it. How are they going to see it? It's spiritual. Obviously, Something spiritual has to happen in you if you're going to be able to see something that's spiritual. That's exactly what it says. You cannot even see this thing, Nicodemus, unless you've been born again. Born again. Or more correctly, and this is my translation that I prefer, born from God. Born from above. This is a supernatural, heavenly spiritual birth that had nothing to do with you. It came from the Father in heaven who has begotten you. The new birth is an amazing miracle. And when a young man or a young woman or an old man or an old woman gets born again, no wonder all of the angels in heaven start rejoicing. It's that big of a deal when someone gets born again. They've actually been transformed in such a way that they can now see spiritual things. They can now hear and understand spiritual things. But that's not where Jesus stops. He says, now, let me go on, Nicodemus. Unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom. Everybody here understand the difference between seeing and entering? I can see that room back there. You 
you probably could if you crane your neck around. But I see a room back there. Does that mean I'm in it? No. I'm not in it. What do I need to do? I need to enter it. Two different experiences. How do I enter the kingdom? Born of water and spirit. And you'll learn when you go through this book, that's referring to water baptism and the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Two foundational experiences that we need in our Christian experience that go beyond that first one of receiving Jesus into our life and being born again. You know, God has an uncanny way of bringing a song to me when he wants me to hear it, whether it's on the radio or on the internet or something. Um, it just He has a way of ministering to me in a very special way through songs. And it happened again yesterday. My wife had some songs playing on YouTube on her computer upstairs. She wasn't even there. She wasn't even listening to it. And I had to go into the little office there to get something from the printer. I think I had finished printing out my sermon, actually. And I was only in the room, literally, for 20 seconds. Picked up the paper, was about to go back downstairs, and this song that was playing on YouTube grabbed me. How many of you know what I'm talking about? It stopped me in my tracks. I'd never heard it before. And I'm like, whoa, what is that? And I had to go look on the screen, make a note of who it was, never even heard of the people, never heard of the song, and went and downloaded it, and it's been stuck in my head ever since. And the chorus says, I'm no longer a slave of fear. Because I'm a child of God. How simple. I'm no longer a slave of fear. Because I'm a child of God. Let me tell you something. When you're born again, everything changes. The whole game changes. Now God is your father. And we're going to come to that here in the sermon. How do you pray now? Do you pray, oh, almighty, sovereign, holy God, seated on your throne in heaven, I come before you with my petitions today. No, you say, Father, Father, I'm your child, Father. Whole different way of praying. I'm a child of God now. So, kingdom of God will be inherited by the born again, the born of water, the born of spirit. Again, because it's a spiritual kingdom. The natural man cannot understand, let alone possibly do, the things that we're going to read about in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. They're impossible. And those who are going to inherit the kingdom of God, very simply, I think Jesus says this in the verses we already read at the end of the sermon, are those that do these things. Those that follow the laws of the kingdom are the ones that are going to be worthy of the kingdom. And they're very different from another group that I think is that group that hears, depart from me, I don't know who you are. 
Have you all heard me teach about the Judges 2125 church? <laughs> uh, well, Judges 2125 is the last verse in Judges. And it says, Israel had no king. Listen to that. Hold on. Israel had no king, and therefore everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Why were they all doing what was right in their own eyes? That's what people do naturally. I mean, that comes naturally to me, doesn't it, to you? I do what I want to do. I grab what I want. Unless I have a king. Israel had no king. So, it was a free-for-all. Everybody was doing whatever they wanted. And that's so prevalent in, I'll use the word loosely today, in the modern church. Oh, we go to church, we sing a few songs, we hear whatever the preacher has to say, and we go about our own business and do what we think is right in our own eyes. And little do we know, we're becoming a Judges 21-25 church. They're very common. Everybody does what they want. This uh, Chuck Colson, who's now gone to be with the Lord, I think you all know who he, who he was, um, he was part of Watergate and went to prison and he found the Lord in prison and um, actually came out and was a very outspoken Christian. And um, one of the things I've heard him speak about before was salad bar Christianity. <laughs> You're hearing a lot of strange stuff today, right? You know, when you go to, well, you all go to the buffet, right? And God help you if you eat everything in that place. If you just go right down the line and take every single thing that they're offering there, whew, you're going to be really sick when you get home. But we think Christianity is like that buffet where we come and go, I don't like spinach. Broccoli? French fries? Yeah. I'll take seconds of those. Lettuce and salad? Ew. And we pick and choose what we want. And then we come to the Bible and we go, I don't like that passage. I don't like that teaching that the pastor gave last week. That was a hard saying. I don't like this stuff about surrender and King Jesus ruling my life. I don't like that stuff. Well... I'm sorry to break this to you, but it's not a salad bar. We need the whole thing. When they celebrated the Passover, they had to eat the whole lamb. They couldn't pick and choose which part of the lamb. And the Passover lamb represents Jesus. There are certain parts that aren't as palatable as others, but it's all good for us. So, that's my introduction. Now can I begin? Yes. All right, here we go. Um, Matthew 5, 1. I'm just going to read the first 12 verses. And that's probably about as far as we're going to be able to get. But this should be enough. And I think, uh, what was it, two weeks ago, Pastor Ike spoke quite a bit from Matthew 5 also, further along, about going the second mile and 
turning the other cheek, and um, we all agreed that that was Gideon's assignment, the, you know, the turning of the other cheek, so he's going to be working on that assignment here. <laughs> but really, uh, and loving your enemies, praying for those that persecute you, those are impossible things. You can't do that in your own goodness, in your own, you know, I don't care how much, you know, willpower you have, you're not going to be able to do those things. It's impossible. So, why did Jesus even teach them? Well, let's start from the beginning and see what in the world this sermon really is. Matthew 5, 1, I want you to pay close attention to verse 1. Because this is introductory to the sermon, which begins in verse 3. And seeing the multitudes, or NIV says crowds, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Two words we're going to come back and look at. Crowds, or multitudes, and disciples. Two groups. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for what? What is on his mind? The kingdom. What is this whole sermon about from beginning to end? The kingdom. What a strange way to start a sermon. How blessed you are if you're poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. As I mentioned, there's some very critical information given in verse 1. You read this often in the Gospels. Huge crowds gather to hear Jesus, certainly to be fed by Jesus, to be healed by Jesus. Huge crowds were following him around. But I want you to notice, and you can look this up for yourself a number of other places, notice the difference between the crowds and disciples. They're not the same. They're not. Crowds come to be fed. 5,000 on one occasion, that's just the men. 4,000 on another. Boy, they had a good meal. But even those people Jesus warned, man, don't follow me for food that perishes. You're not following me for the right reasons. And so, I find this fascinating. Here again, 
The crowds are there. And what does he do? He goes up on the mountain. And although it seems at the end of the sermon, the crowds were also listening in, who's really hearing him? Who's hearing him? The disciples. Who's he really talking to? Disciples. This sermon is for disciples. What's a disciple? Well, that's another whole thing. We have a word that I think will give you a clue. It's a word nobody likes. Discipline. (laughs) Oh, no. You mean if I want to be a disciple, I've got to have discipline? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. All kinds of it. So, he went up on the mountain... And it says, when he was seated, his disciples came to him. You see, they they stepped out from the crowd. They wanted to get closer to Jesus. On some occasions, after he had finished delivering a parable or something like the parable of the sower and the parable of the wheat and tares, they went into the house with him, got him alone. And said, now explain it to us. And he did. But he didn't explain it to the crowds. He explained it to the disciples. Disciples have ears. We're looking for disciples. We're looking for people that have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying to the church in these last days. And I have nothing against crowds. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not that impressed with them anymore. I'm not. I'm looking for a few who want to be disciples. And it says in verse 3, well, verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, these are known as the Beatitudes. You've probably heard that. And I've heard these taught in a number of different ways. You know, they're the be happy attitudes. But I would uh, maintain that this isn't the same thing as happy. Being blessed is not necessarily what the world calls being happy. You're not going to be happy when you're persecuted. (laughs) You might be joyful, but I'm not going to say that's going to be a happy experience. Being blessed by God is something far beyond happiness. You know where the word happiness comes from? It comes from the word happen. Things happen. It, it, it refers to happenings, events. When things are happening nice, I'm happy. When they're not happening the way I want them to happy to happen, I'm unhappy. And some Christians live their lives like roller coasters. One day they're happy. One day they're unhappy because they're basing their life on what's happening. Oh my God, I could preach a sermon on that one. Preach it. It isn't always going to happen the way you want it to happen. Stuff happens to Christians and to non-Christians. Well, at least if you're a Christian... 
you know He's with you. And that's how you can be blessed in whatever's happening. But things are going to shake. Things are going to come against you. And they're not going to make you happy. But you can be blessed in the midst of it. What is this first one? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He's not talking necessarily about physical poverty. Let me help you with a word that I could replace the word poor with that has helped me to understand it. Bankrupt. (laughs) Blessed are the bankrupt in spirit. Time out, Jesus. Wait, wait. We're talking about the kingdom here. This is a spiritual kingdom. Only the born again can see it and enter it. And you start off saying, I gotta be bankrupt spiritually if it's gonna be mine. Yep, that's right. Again, I'm sure thousands of sermons and books have been preached and written on this, but let me keep it simple. What God says to me through that is, Wayne, you don't have anything in you. (laughs) You don't have anything in you that's a part of this kingdom. It has to come from above. That's why you got to be born of the water, born of spirit, born of God. you got to have God in you, God's spirit in you, God's life in you, because when Paul searched deeply within inside himself, what did he find? Romans 7, he says, I find no good thing in me. Even though I want to please God, I want to live this way, it's not in me. Now, is God trying to torment us here? No. No, that's not the kind of God we're talking about. He wouldn't tell us to do something and then torture us and torment us by saying, ha, 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 I gave you all these impossible rules and you're bankrupt. You don't have the wherewithal to do them. What I think it does mean is the attitude of a citizen of the kingdom of God, we learn right off the bat in the very first verse here, is somebody that's like this. God, help me. God, I empty myself. There's no good thing in me. I need you to be my king. I need you to enable me to do these things. And again, we could cite many, many scriptures in the New Testament, but we don't have time to do that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, And then we saw in chapter 10 again, I'm sorry, in verse 10, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Now let's just put those two together. (laughs) If you're impoverished, bankrupt in spirit, you have no good thing in you, and now you're being beaten up by everybody, God bless you, the kingdom's yours. 
Are you getting a picture here already? And the deeper you go into these three chapters, the more that whole picture gets filled in. That's why I call this radical. This has nothing to do with the way the world does things. It's totally opposite. Blessed are those who mourn. That's the second bylaw. (laughs) Well, it goes right along with the first one. If I know I'm poor in spirit, what kind of an attitude is that going to have me in? It's going to have me in a very humble attitude. I'm not trying to be humble. I am humble when I realize there's no good thing in me. And it causes me to mourn over my poverty. Lord, I'm not like this. I can't turn the other cheek. Man, I'm going to want to make both fists if somebody comes at me. You say something bad about me? Man, I'll have 20 things to say about you. It just comes naturally. I don't have this kind of a life in me. And it causes us to go to God and seek Him seriously with prayer, with fasting, with mourning. Mourning over our own condition, our own selfishness, our own pride which we're going to see highlighted in a number of ways in these three chapters. But mourning over my own condition, not all, oh boy, I've got it together. Look at how spiritual I am. No. Mourning. Blessed are the meek. Now meekness isn't exactly the same thing as humility. They're similar. And meekness, as some preachers have pointed out, is not the same thing as weakness. Meekness is about being totally surrendered to God, and you're no longer going to be fighting for your own rights. He's going to fight for you. He's your defense. You don't need to defend yourself. And meekness will help us a lot with that turning the other cheek, and going the second mile, praying for those that hate us and persecute us. Because the meek person has made God his defense, his refuge, his all in all. It's not just kind of laying down and being everybody's doormat. That's a different kind of a spirit from true meekness. Jesus said, I'm meek and gentle in heart. But he went into the temple and overturned the money changers' tables, took a whip, and man, he was fired up that day. So that's what a meek man may look like, but he wasn't doing it in his own, you know, self-revenge, I'm going to get even with these guys, I hate these guys or anything. No, he was zealous for his father. Whole different thing. Blessed are those who are hungry. Man, this is a strange bunch of people. They're poor, they're mourning, they're broken, and they're hungry. Hungry and thirsty. But let me say this. If you just take these few verses, the Beatitudes, and you can make a little list on your own. Um, Poor in spirit. Mourning. Meek. Merciful persecuted, you start to get a pretty clear picture of what a citizen 
of the kingdom ought to look like. This is what kingdom citizens look like. And so, when I see folks, even in church settings, that seem to demonstrate pretty clearly, they have no hunger for God. They're not really interested. Bible study? Uh, I'm busy. Prayer? Uh, I don't have time. Sunday worship? Uh, I might make it once a month. i got to work most of the other Sundays. And really, it doesn't matter that much to me. I'm not that hungry. Those folks concern me because I don't know how they expect to be blessed if they're not hungry and thirsty. Hungry and thirsty. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. He's very specific here too. And he's going to repeat this again in chapter 6. Hungry and thirsty, not for power, not for glory, not for ministry, not for position, for righteousness. Matthew 6.33, first scripture I ever memorized. Seek first the what? The kingdom. The kingdom of God and His righteousness. They're thirsty for righteousness. I want this in me, Lord, and I'm going to seek you for it. I'm hungry for it. I'm thirsty for it. Later on, we're going to find him saying, if you don't have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you'll never enter the kingdom. Those guys were righteous. They had their holy robes. They recited long prayers. They knew the scriptures inside and out. And Jesus said, you better have something better than they had. <laughs> Woo! Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Each one of these is a sermon or a book, perhaps. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those, as we already mentioned, who are persecuted. This is helping us to understand. This is what God's called us into. This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of God. People like this represent the kingdom of God. And again, I'm not going to go through line by line, but if you study especially Matthew 5, and later in the chapters where you get into those scriptures about going the second mile and loving even people who hate you, and in... Pastor Ike's sermon on that a few weeks ago, uh, one of the things that really struck me, and again, you can know these things, but you really don't. <laughs> it just, it came out so clear in his sermon. If all we do is love people who are nice to us, you're not getting any reward. Sounds rather harsh, doesn't it? That's the way it is in the kingdom. Well, what do most people do in life? They're nice to the people that are nice to them. And what happens to the rest? Better look out. <laughs> Depending on what level of violence and vengeance they will allow in their life, you may be finished. 
if you cross them wrong. I mean, we are, we're all, hopefully we're all nice to people that are nice to us. I mean, that's fairly commendable. That ain't going to get you anywhere in the kingdom. Nowhere. No reward whatsoever. So if I want rewards in this thing called the kingdom, I should start looking for opportunities. And you don't have to pray for these. God will send them graciously. He'll send you enemies. He'll send you people who falsely accuse you. Trust me, he will. You won't have to look for them. And please don't pray for them. (laughs) God, send me some enemies this week so I can practice what Pastor Wayne was talking about. No, you won't need to ask for them. They will come. But they're opportunities for you to practice the kingdom and to gain rewards in the kingdom. But I want to move on. And again, I'm, this isn't going to take as long as you might think because I'm just skimming for the rest of the way. Chapter 6. You have to remember, and I had to keep reminding myself of this, this is one sermon. We often pause, you know, maybe between chapters and come back a few days later to study it. But this was one sermon. <coughs> he delivered from start to finish. <coughs> Sorry. Chapter 6 has a whole different tone. Much of chapter 6 and even into chapter 7 again, and this is what's going to tie it all together to verses 21 to 23. That group that said, Lord, Lord, we did all these wonderful things. And he says, I don't know you. I want you to notice how many times in chapter 6 and the opening verses of chapter 7, Jesus uses the same word, hypocrite. There are some very strong warnings in chapter 6 and the first part of chapter 7 about hypocrisy in religion. Let me help us all here a little bit. That's where it happens. It happens in religion. So, we are the church. Praise God. Amen. The church is in the basement today. That's right. We don't know where it will be tomorrow. But the church is here today. But this can also, hopefully not, but it can be a breeding ground for hypocrisy. We actually create that by the very nature of the beast. Because we're all the time talking about what we're supposed to do, how we're supposed to act, what we're supposed to, <clears throat> what we're supposed to look like. And most of us know we're not really living that way, so we have to fake it. Oh boy, be careful. That's where the warnings come in. Beware of hypocrisy. It's in all of us. It can attack all of us. And we have to be aware of it. In the opening verses of Matthew 6, I'm not going to read them all. You can look at them for yourself. Jesus talks about three particular arenas in the religious life where hypocrisy 
often creeps in. In giving, in praying, and in fasting. And in all three cases, he actually refers to, <clears throat> let me read one of them just so you get the flavor here. I'm reading from the NIV now. Matthew 6, verse 1. Be careful. What's be careful mean? Beware. Be careful. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. You see, that's the root of all hypocrisy. We want to impress people. I know from... Matthew 5, verse 3, I'm really not very spiritual, <laughs> but i got to fake it. And, I mean, certainly I've got to at least impress Fauci and make him think I'm spiritual when I'm really not. So what have I done? I've already set myself up for hypocrisy. And I'm performing for him or for others to see. That's what Jesus says. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have what? No reward. No reward. There it is again. No reward from your Father in heaven. So, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by men. That's what it's all about. We want that honor from men. Whether it's giving, preaching, praying, singing, prophesying, you fill in the blanks. Again in verse 5, when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites. And this part really struck me as I was studying this. For they what? They love to pray. Whoa, whoa, whoa. They what? They love to pray standing. They love to pray. Well, we want people in our church that love to pray, right? Well, yes and no. Depends on why they love to pray. You see, the kingdom goes beyond the outward act. It gets into the heart. It gets into the motive. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Is it to be seen of men? Is it for people to hear my prayer and go, Wow, he prays so eloquently. Oh, it was so beautiful to hear him give that long prayer. They, lo they love to pray long prayers. They could pray up a storm. But what were they? Hypocrites. Hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received their reward in full. That's it. A few rounds of applause, a few pats on the back. Okay, you got your reward, you're done. What a waste. <laughs> what a waste. Hypocrisy. In religion, be careful, be careful. And 
I'm not saying this to sound humble. I'm just being real with you. I've, I've been doing this for almost 44 years. And this is something I still have to be very, very careful about. Because that tendency is always there to put on a show. And you know, that's one reason why I actually like meeting in settings like this, where we're, we don't have a stage and a big pulpit and spotlights on the preacher. And it almost sets up the whole uh, stage for me or someone to get up there and perform. Let's go watch the Pastor Wayne show today. <laughs> no, there's no show. There's no show. We're coming to seek the Lord. We're coming to glorify God. And usually you can discern pretty quickly what the Spirit is in that particular meeting or in that particular ministry. Is it a show? Or are the people really there to seek the Lord, asking Him to show up? There's a big difference. So, a lot more about that. But then we come into chapter 7. And he's still on this theme. And I'm reading from the New King James now. Matthew 7 verses 1 to 5. This first verse everybody loves to quote. All the sinners, <laughs> all the newscasters, everybody knows it. Judge not so that you won't be judged. Right? He's not done. You better read the rest of the sermon. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, think carefully before you criticize somebody else. Whatever measuring stick you're using on them, the same one's going to be used on you. And, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? I like that. Get the picture. Somebody else has gotten a little piece of sawdust in their eye. Man, that can be really irritating. And you're going to try to help him get the piece of sawdust out of his eye. But you got a two by four in your eye. Seriously, that's what it says. You have a plank, a whole two by four is in your eye. How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your eye. What's verse five say? Thou hypocrite. Hypocrite. He's still talking about hypocrisy. Why was he a hypocrite? He could see everybody else's faults. Except for the biggest one in the room. His own. And here's the problem. And I never saw this before, but this, again, all this ties to verses 21 to 23. My point today is, how can we be sure we're not going to end up like one of them? 
I think that's what this whole sermon is about. It's assuring us, you don't need to be like one of those that I say, I never knew you. The problem with this guy, he couldn't see. Say that with me. He couldn't see. Well, what's a simpler way of saying that? He was blind. Hypocrisy blinds us. And that's the danger. Those folks in 21 to 23, they were blind. They were so deceived. They were still calling him Lord. They were still talking about all of their experiences, prophesying, casting out demons, walking on water, working wonderful miracles. But they were blind. Totally blind to their own condition. Here's how it happens. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly. Say that with me. See clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He's not saying leave your brother alone and let him suffer with the piece of sawdust in his eyeball. Work on your own life so you can help other people. But first deal with the plank. First deal with your own stuff. I have an uncanny ability to criticize everybody on the face of the earth. Man, I can catch everybody's faults and miss my own. Somehow, we got to get that reversed. Where the biggest fault in the room is mine. It's the plank in my own eye. And the worst sin in the room is not yours or somebody else's. It's mine. And if I deal with it correctly, then God will start to use me to help other people get the stuff out of their life. Matthew 7, a little further down, verses 15 to 20. Watch out. He started off the chapter saying, beware, be careful. He's still giving warnings here. Watch out for what? False prophets. For they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? or figs from thistles. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. And what comes in the very next verse? Are you getting the picture? Watch out for fakes. There are going to be a lot of them. Hypocrites, fakes. Those who say a lot, maybe even they have a flashy ministry, they pray long, eloquent prayers, they boast about how much they've given or how long they're fasting and all this. Jesus says that doesn't mean anything. 
Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. Because, and I'm a biologist, that might sound weird to you, Rudy, but <laughs> I was first a biologist before I got saved. So I understand a little bit about this stuff. Um, if you have a certain tree, it's only going to produce one kind of fruit. I don't care how much fertilizer, how much water you put around it. It's going to keep bearing the same fruit. That's just the nature of the tree. That's why we must be born again. We must become a new creation with all new DNA in us if we're going to produce any other kind of fruit than the fruit we produced all of our unsaved life. I know the kind of fruit I produced in the first 23 years of my life. That's all I can naturally produce unless I become a new tree. If the tree changes, then it can start to produce good fruit. But he warns against hypocrisy he warns against fakes and imposters. By the way, can I say something? I know I've gone a long time here today. But it's pretty comfortable in here. I could go on and on like Paul in Troas till people start falling out of the window. But I won't do that. Beware of super spiritual people. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, they're always way up in the heavenlies with God. Angels are just constantly flying around them. Visions of the night. God just walks with them and talks with them. And God is always speaking to me. Oh, the Lord told me this. And the Lord spoke. Now, don't. Don't misunderstand me. God speaks to us. I believe in that. I believe in angels. I want the Lord to visit me in the night season. I want an angel to come and fly around my bed. But you know what? In 44 years, it hadn't happened that much. And I don't want to mislead anybody here. I'm not super spiritual. And I'm real scared now when I meet those type of people. Because over 44 years, they've always turned out to be fakes. Always. And we have this picture, it's a, it's a false, distorted picture, maybe, of what a real Christian is supposed to look like. We're just ordinary people, filled with God. But we're ordinary people. And I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that... Jesus or any of the apostles were super spiritual. I don't know if you've thought about this, but when they came to arrest Jesus, they needed Judas to point out which one of them was the Messiah. The one I kiss, that'll be the one. He must have looked just like Peter, just like John. Just an ordinary guy. Do you think Paul the Apostle was all, you know, holy, 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 and don't get near me, I'm, angels are talking to me right now? Now, he had heavenly revelations, no doubt. But 
My point is, so often that's just fake stuff. We're not interested in fake. We want the real. I want the Holy Spirit to move. I want angels to visit us. I want prophecy. I want signs and wonders. But I want the real deal. I'll tell you what, after 44 years, I'm tired of the fake. I want the real deal. And I'm telling God in my own times of prayer, God, I want a real visitation of your spirit. I want to see the real power of God and the real church emerge in these last days. Not some fake substitute where we're just playing church and mouthing off words. That's why Paul did say, the kingdom of God is not in words. It's power. And I urge every one of us, seek the real power of God. Seek the real anointing of the Holy Spirit. Don't settle for anything fake. Don't settle for anything less. Okay, so beware of fakes, beware of imposters, and then we come right into the scripture we started with. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord. Back up to verse 13. I skipped that on purpose. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many, how many? Many. many. Ouch. There's that word again. Many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And I like the NIV here. Only a few. Only a few find it. Apparently, this kingdom way that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is talking to us about is not going to be very popular. And I'm not trying to, you know, bash megachurches, but I don't think it's going to be the megachurch philosophy. It's not going to be the one that brings in the huge crowds. Narrow. Few. Why? Because this is for those who want to practice what we've been reading about. <laughs> How many of you, I mean, we haven't even read all three chapters today, but just what we've shared, and I think most of you heard what Ike preached from chapter 5 a couple of weeks ago. How many of you think this is easy stuff to do? It isn't. How many of you think this is going to be a popular teaching? <laughs> Come on, brother. Be blessed. Get persecuted. Somebody asks you to go a mile? Go to. They want to strip the clothes off your back? Give them everything you own. No wonder it's narrow. No wonder only a few find it. And I wish we had time, and we don't. And I really am about to finish this. This can't be done humanly. That's why only those that have been born of God, born of water, 
born of the Spirit. They've been transformed from the inside out. Only they can possibly live this kind of a life. It has to be supernatural. It has to be by God's grace and by God's power. Can't be done. I don't care how good you and I think we are. Our goodness will fall far short. Can't do it. Now, one last thought I want to leave with you. And I've deliberately left this one out. Sandwiched right in the middle of all of this, I deliberately skipped it, in Matthew 6, is what we all know as the Lord's Prayer. Did you notice that? It's in the sermon. He talked about hypocrisy in prayer. Don't make long prayers like the Pharisees and the hypocrites. Then he's going to teach them how to pray. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, I'm reading from the New King James now, hallowed be your name. Your what? Kingdom. Your what? Kingdom. Your kingdom come. Now, is the kingdom already in heaven? Oh, you better believe it. The king's already on his throne. That's not what we're told to pray for. Your kingdom come, and it's almost synonymous with Your will be done. We learn later in chapter 7. Your kingdom come. This is what we should be praying for. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Where? On earth. earth. Whoa. That's transformed the way I pray in the last month or two. God, let your kingdom come into X, Y, or Z situation here on earth. Let the people involved in this situation see your kingdom. Let your kingdom come into my life. I don't want to just hear about it, know about it up here. Let your kingdom invade me. And let your will be done in me first just as it always is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. No time today, but a biggie, biggie, biggie in the kingdom is forgiveness. You don't forgive others, you just disqualified yourself. Oh, but pastor, you don't know what they did to me. And you don't know what they did to Jesus. You and I can't even fathom what happened to Christ. And what did he say? Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Read this sermon again on your own sometime this week, and I want you to notice, I think at least eight times it mentions the kingdom. But notice from start to finish, that's what the whole thing's about. The kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. God's kingdom. How do I enter the kingdom? What, what, is the, what are the characteristics of those who inherit the kingdom? Well, they're broken. 
They're poor in spirit. They're mourning. They're meek. They don't fight for their own rights. They, they've learned to turn the other cheek and love their enemies. These are strange people. These are, <laughs> I would like to call them otherworldly people. They're from another world. These people are from Mars or somewhere. And you start living this, that's what people are going to think about you. Man, that guy's weird. He just got trashed in the office. And he brought candy to everybody the next day. What's wrong with this guy? He's different. That's right. You will be salt and light, Matthew 5 says, when you start living like this. And as I mentioned earlier, how fitting also that sandwiched right in the middle of all this in chapter 6 is seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added to you. If there's one thing I hope I've learned now in 44 years, and this was something God taught me in the early days of my first year as a Christian, seek first the kingdom. I don't know what that means practically in your life, but the Holy Spirit will make it very clear to you what that means. And I don't know where God has you in your personal walk with Him, but as you pray, I think you'll start to find, just like a teacher you know, puts up the assignments on the board, you'll start to sense that certain things in these three chapters that we've just read are your assignment right now. <laughs> Maybe you have somebody um, that's hard to get along with, somebody who's really opposing you, persecuting you, being mean to you or something. I hope not, but maybe. Well, you need to pray over those scriptures. How, how do I deal with this, Lord? Well, there's an easy place to start. He says start praying for them. Then it's going to take a little bit more. He might actually tell you, do good to them. Do something nice for them. My wife recently did something like that. I won't go into the particulars, but <laughs> somebody did something pretty bad. And she goes and sends flowers to them. Blew them away. They were speechless. They literally called us on the phone and they could hardly speak. It, it was like so disarming. And you try it. And you'll be amazed. I tell a story in my other book how we had a lady in up in Queens, New York. I was pastoring a church in Brooklyn there. And we were starting a new branch of the church in Queens. And we were renting a building. It was a very large, nice, spacious building, but it needed a whole lot of remodeling. And we had a lot of brothers in the church that were talented and, you know, roofing and construction and all that. And a lot of them were doing the work for us free of any charge except for the materials. And we were coming along really nicely with the remodeling and it was going to be a really nice place. We had already announced our opening inauguration service on such and such a date 
and we were spreading flyers out in the area, and everybody was really excited, you know. Man, new building, new church, let's go for it. Well, there was a lady that lived right next door to the building that didn't like us and didn't much care for the fact that there was going to be a church next door to her. And she was a lady of some influence. And she got a hold of people in City Hall, and long story short, shut us down. Officials came, condemned the building, said, no way, you can't have church here. And one day I was in my office, and I was praying, and I'm like, Lord, smite her. Take her out. Lightning bolts. She's an enemy of God, Lord. Deal with this enemy of the church. You know how you can pray, right? A still small voice keeps coming, and I keep rebuking it, thinking that's the devil. Bind the devil. Get out of here, Satan. Make her a cake. Satan, get behind me. Lord, smite her. Make her a cake. No. That lady doesn't deserve a cake. She deserves your judgment, Lord. She is stopping the advance of your kingdom. Deal with her, Lord. Make her a cake. Finally, I couldn't stop anymore. I realized, oh God, that's right, Matthew 5. We're supposed to love our enemies. So I went to one of the ladies in the church. I said, can you make me a cake? Not for me. She said, what's it for? I said, just bake a cake, please. Gives me the cake. And it took a lot of courage. Boy, I, I, I'm fighting with God all through this whole thing. Finally, I get up the courage, go knock on the lady's door. I'm standing there with this cake. And I'm hoping she isn't home. <laughs> and I knocked, and I knocked, and there's no answer. I'm like, yes, she's not here. I'm, I'm going to do my duty, Lord, and I'm just going to leave the cake here on the porch and make my exit. So I'm laying the cake down on the porch, I'm heading down the steps, and I hear the door screech a little bit as it opens. Yes? Hi. I'm Pastor Wayne from the church next door. We just wanted to express our love to you, and the ladies of the church baked you a cake. Here you go. She was speechless. I'm not making this up. She could not speak. She just took the cake and looked at me and I left. It was weird. It was very awkward. But she couldn't speak. I said, okay, have a nice day. And I'm like, okay, Lord, I did my, I did my duty. I'm done with this. In less than a week, I don't know what strings she pulled, but she was a lady of some influence. She went right back, talked to whoever the officials were in the city. They came back and said, your use and occupancy has been approved. 
You can start and have your meetings whenever you want. Cakes can do marvelous things. <laughs> but it's more than the cake. It's, it's the kingdom. You see, the kingdom was manifested that day to that woman. She didn't know what she was seeing. But I know now what it was. She saw the kingdom. She saw the kingdom. And it changed everything. And you can't make this up. Guess who came to our first inauguration service? The cake lady. Now, I don't know that she ever really got saved. But from that day on, she was our best friend in the neighborhood. And, you know, I wish I could say I've always dealt with enemies and opposition the way I did with that one, but I haven't. I haven't. I want to. And whenever I have, I've seen the way God can move supernaturally. But often we descend back into the natural, the carnal, the worldly. And remember, kingdom isn't there. Cannot inherit the kingdom. Let's pray today that God's kingdom would come. God's will be done in our lives. And wherever we're at in our spiritual journey, that God would help us to begin to take these sayings of Jesus and realize He wants us to do them. He wants us to do them. And He's not just trying to torment us with these impossible laws. They're radical, but He wants us to live them. And He wants us to experience the joy and the the power that comes when we embrace these sayings of Jesus. Father, I thank You today for the words of Jesus. Thank You, Lord, for this Sermon on the Mount. Such amazing, radical things the Lord Jesus presented in that one sermon. And Lord, even the crowd that was apparently listening in, they were amazed at such a teaching. And Lord, we're amazed today at the things you teach us in your word. And we're understanding, at least in part, that your kingdom is not like anything in this world. And Lord, we want to stop trying to imitate the world. We are asking today that you would transform us from the inside out, renew our minds, help us to embrace these sayings of yours. And when we find ourselves opposed, hated, persecuted, or in other types of challenging situations, rather than react in our own flesh and in our own uh, carnal way, help us to come to you, to seek you, to hunger and to thirst for your righteousness. Lord, we covenant together today that we're going to seek first your kingdom, your righteousness, and you've promised to add everything else to us. Lord, we don't want to be like that group who in the final day they're saying, Lord, Lord, and you come back and say, don't know you. 
you lawless one. Lord, we want to embrace the laws of your kingdom. We want a personal relationship with you where we know you and you know us. And God, that we would lay down any hypocrisy, anything in us that just wants to put on a show and try to fake something rather than allow your Holy Spirit to work powerfully in us. And God, I am personally asking you, change me. Change me from the inside out. Root out any tendency to faking and hypocrisy and putting on a show and pretending. Lord, I want the real thing in every part of my life and my Christian experience. We humble ourselves before you today. God, I thank you for each and every one here. Lord, let us make that step and that decision to move out of the crowd and to become a disciple, a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, I ask you to bless, to keep each and every one here, Make your face shine upon us and be gracious to us. Lift up your countenance on us and give us your peace.